Hey guys, it's the Weather Channel podcast. I'm Ari Sarsalari. I'm a meteorologist here at the Weather Channel, and I'm sitting down with Bob Henson today, another meteorologist at the Weather Channel with a little more experience than me, especially when it comes to El Nino, La Nina. Uh, you can kind of refer to the whole th- thing as ENSO, the El Nino Southern Oscillation. You've probably heard a lot about it. It became popular back in the 90s, back when Chris Farley had that skit. Remember, we had a really big El Nino back then. And I want to just kind of go over today, what the heck is El Nino? What's La Nina? Why do we care about it? And all that good stuff. So what's up, Bob? Thanks for hanging out with me for a few minutes. (laughs) Hey, Ari. Great to be here. All right. So Basically, what this refers to, El Nino and La Nina, for people that are not familiar, it just has to do with you know how how much above average or below average the water temperature is in this specific part of the Pacific Ocean. All right, so it's a central and eastern equatorial Pacific, so right around the equator. Think of kind of a wide rectangle, just box drawn around that area. If it's warmer in that area than usual, the water that is, um, that means we're in an El Nino. And if the water's a little bit cooler than usual in that area, that means we're in a La Nina. But it can have a lot of effects on the weather across the world. And of course, we care the most, if you're listening to this in the United States, about the weather in the U.S. Um, You know, what are your general thoughts, Bob, on like some of the things that are the most um, easily affected by this El Nino and La Nina thing? Well, interestingly enough, you know, it's the single biggest influence on global weather on the time scale of say one to two to three years. So there's a tremendous amount of a predictive value with El Nino and La Nina. Um, the nice thing is you can usually see it developing several months ahead of time. And because El Nino and La Nina events tend to happen on a kind of a school year schedule uh, in the U.S., they, they tend to intensify in the fall and peak in the winter and fade in the spring. That means by the time you get to summer and fall, you usually can say with a fair amount of confidence, well, we're going to have an El Nino this winter or a La Nina this winter. So by knowing that, you can actually say something about what kind of weather is most likely uh, in the U.S. And, and a lot of other places as well. Well, why don't we start for uh, tropical weather? Because that's, you know, kind of what's going on right now. we got all this action going on in the Atlantic. You know, how does that uh, – how does the water temperature in the equatorial Pacific affect the hurricane season in the Atlantic, for instance? Well, there's a pretty easy connection to to um, to map out. And the basic idea is when you have an El Nino event going on, and this, as you said, is the warm water uh, near the equator, uh, the eastern part of the Pacific, but a large area, it actually, actually can cover, say, half the size of the U.S. So when that warm water is in place, you've got rising motion over a broad area that can uh, persist uh, for months. And that rising motion forces uh, circulation to rearrange itself uh, over a big part of the globe. So in essence, you've got this rising air, favorable conditions for hurricanes in the Northeast Pacific, which are the ones that, that form off Mexico and sometimes come ashore in Mexico, but often just go out to sea. You've also got in response to that rising air, you know, what goes up must come down. So in other areas, you have sinking air. And one of those other areas is the North Atlantic. So that sinking air that predominates over the North Atlantic during El Nino tends to reduce the number of tropical storms and hurricanes. So we can kind of say ahead of time, if we know there's going to be a strong El Nino that lowers the odds that we're going to have a really bad um, Atlantic hurricane season. But it doesn't mean with 100% certainty, right? It's just one factor. No, absolutely. It's just a guarantee. It's not a guarantee. It's just a tendency. Over time, if you look at a bunch of seasons, uh, the El Nino ones tend to be the more quiet ones in the Atlantic. And conversely, when you have a La Nina event, 
uh, kind of the opposite circulation prevails and you tend to get more Atlantic hurricanes. So, so w- where are we right now? Where are we right now? We are leaning towards an El Nino developing. And in fact, uh, there is an El Nino watch out uh, issued by NOAA. So the chances are, you know, maybe 60, 70% we're going to have an El Nino by the time we get to winter. But the last few weeks, um, El Nino hasn't been quite getting to the point of, of kicking in. It's, it's kind of hit a speed bump. And uh, these things are really challenging to predict uh, because they involve not just the ocean, but the atmosphere above the ocean. Uh, it's really this interactive process. Sometimes you get the atmosphere nudging the ocean toward that warm state. But then the ocean may respond in a way that, that affects the trade winds and uh, pushes the other direction. So you've really got to get the ocean atmosphere in sync uh, to get that El Nino. And right now they're not quite there. So um, what this means in terms of Atlantic hurricanes is we don't really have a strong influence yet from what's going on with El Nino and La Nina. So uh, it's kind of leaving the Atlantic to its own devices and uh, with a little bit of help from things like the Madden Julian oscillation, one more cycle, right? The MJO. Oh, we're going to go through some alphabet soup in this podcast. No, no sure. kidding. But anyway, that seems to be what's kicked off the uh, busy September, uh, along with uh, the ocean just warming finally to the point in the season where it supports uh, tropical storms and hurricanes pretty readily. I, I heard a great joke. I was at the Weather Service, or not the Weather Service, the National Weather Association uh, conference last week in St. Louis, and Patrick Marsh was giving a talk. He's, uh, I think, the WCM Warning Coordination Meteorologist at at the SPC. So they're the yep. guys that are like totally in control of, um, you know, forecasting all the severe weather on a large scale in the United States, if you're not familiar with them. But anyway, he, he started off his, um, his talk. He was saying, you know what NOAA stands for, right? The National Organization for the Advancement of Acronyms. <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> I thought it was a pretty good joke. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> weather and acronyms, yeah, W-A-A. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And there are just so many of them, even in just his talk with some of the new stuff that they were um, coming up with at the SBC, which is actually really interesting stuff, and we might have to do a podcast on that at some point. But I digress. Okay, so, um, you know, what is the time frame that we're talking about here with this whole oscillation, okay, between El Nino and La Nina, right? So it's a, it's a pretty big area that we're talking about, and – uh, you know, if you forgot, we talked about this at the beginning of the podcast. It's just, you know, think about where the equator is, then go out in the Pacific Ocean and in the Central and Eastern Pacific, you just kind of circle that area right there, right around the equator in the Pacific Ocean. If that water is warmer than usual, it means El Nino. If that water is cooler than usual, it means La Nina. And, you know, you were just talking about how they issued a, a an El Nino watch. I didn't even know that existed, to to, to be honest. Do they, do they issue warnings? Uh, well, it's, it becomes, I think, an advisory. But yeah, it's, okay. it's a little bit under the radar, but this has been done for several years now. Uh, uh, essentially, when you, you can anticipate based on uh, long-range models that take into account not only the atmosphere, but also the state of the ocean, uh, you, you know, we're getting better and better now at seeing when the system is going to swing into El Nino or La Nina. It's not perfect yet by any means, but uh, especially the big ones, you can really see coming usually several months out. And it just takes several months for those um, events, you know, El Nino, La Nina to, to ripen. So uh, when you say this time of year, you see they're coming, you can say, well, this winter, uh, here's a rough sense of what we might expect. So so say looking ahead to this winter, if we get a, a weak La Nina, or I'm sorry, if we get a weak El Nino this winter, which looks like most likely it won't be a strong one, get a weak one that'll tend to tip things toward uh, not too much temperature contrast. Uh, it tends to be kind of mild in the south and kind of cool in the north, but Nothing too dramatic, usually. And uh, precipitation tends to be heavier in the south, like California to Florida 
and drier in the north. And these are tendencies, when you look at a lot of El Nino events over time, they kind of pop up again and again, but not every year, just just most years. Is is one worse than the other? Like, you know, it seems like in popular culture, you hear more about El Nino. But, you know, La Nina also has a lot of effects on the weather in the world. Is one worse than the other or can they have similarly bad or good effects on the weather? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, and of course, uh, everything depends on your own perspective, right? So right. Uh, it depends on whether you like tornadoes or tranquil weather or hurricanes or whatnot. But <laughs> in general, I think El Nino events tend to be a little more damaging because over most of the globe, they they tend to cause drought in some areas where uh, drought can be a real problem. Um, uh, not so much with La Nina, but uh, certainly in different parts of the world, you know, an El Nino or a La Nina can be pretty devastating. But I'd say on average, probably El Nino is a little bit worse in terms of damage, but uh, some areas fare well. You know, the uh, United States tends to get fewer hurricanes um, during El Nino, so that's certainly a plus. Right. There's that. So you're in a La Nina year. You have a better chance for hurricanes in the Atlantic. And if I remember correctly, I haven't worked in a severe weather market in a while, but I, I, isn't it true that with La Nina's uh, you tend to have a little bit more of an active tornado season in the spring? A little bit. Now, of course, once you get to spring, uh, because of this kind of academic year calendar, uh, El Nino and La Nina both tend to be fading. That's right. So their influence kind of fades as you get into the spring. So they're not like the, the strongest influence, but but they do tend to tip things a little. And yes, uh, La Nina events tend to cause uh, a little more severe weather, especially early in the spring. You know, the the big outbreaks like uh, 1974 and 2011, um, those depend on strong contrasts at, at upper levels of the surface. And La Nina is the phase where you get the strong cold fronts, you know, the Arctic blasts and the huge contrast between really warm and wet in the southeast and cold and dry in the northwest. And uh, La Nina kind of crunches those contrasts together. El Nino smooshes them out. So when you have the tight contrast, you're more likely going to get severe weather. So, yeah, I, I look for La Nina events, especially those kind of coming out of La Nina in the spring. Um, well, that, we, that we all know that that's a, the only thing that causes tornadoes. I mean, when you watch the big national news graphics, it always, it's always a big clash between hot and cold air. That's it. The you get tornadoes. Is, yeah. yeah, exactly. And I, I was obviously simplifying that. <laughs> uh, you know, there's all these other factors. But it is true that when you have the, um, the kind of amped up contrast, you know, the intensified jet stream, the moisture coming in from the the Caribbean and the Gulf. And all those things tend to happen when you get a La Nina a little more often. Very true. Okay, so I, I think I asked this earlier, but we got on a tangent. Um, like, what's the time frame on how often it shifts between these two? Ah, the shifting, yeah, the pendulum, as it were. And yes. we have to think of it kind of as a, a messy pendulum. You know, it's, uh, scientists often call it quasi-regular or quasi-cyclic. Um, because it um, El Nino events tend to last a year more often than not, you know, they'll come out in the fall, uh, peak in the northern winter and fade in the spring. And that's that. Uh, sometimes you'll get one lasting two years. The one of 2014 to 2016 lasted two years, although the second half of it was the strongest. Uh, La Nina, in contrast, La Nina events often will last two years, sometimes even three years. It just kind of takes longer for the, the Pacific to recover from an El Nino, if you will. So an El Nino event will push this warm water over to one side and then it gradually relaxes the other direction, kind of like sloshing in a bathtub uh, in a simplistic way. Yeah. So, yeah, so La Niñas tend to last a little bit longer, um, and it tends to roughly go back and forth, but you'll, you'll often get a neutral year in between. 
So on average, you might think of it as a third of the time El Nino, a third of the time La Nina, and a third of the time neutral. Okay, so here's another question about this. You know, you mentioned that El Nino tends to last a little bit shorter, but I'm just kind of curious as we're talking about this, you know, with climate change going on and all that kind of stuff and everything getting warmer, I know in general water temperatures have been warmer, you know, do you expect that to change? Because you would think intrinsically, you know, if things are getting warmer, then the El Ninos would be longer, right? Yeah, then this is a really good and and very important question. And it's one that's been researched a lot. And there haven't been any really firm answers yet. You know, it's just a little hard to say what's going to happen. Partly that's because it's it's difficult to to represent El Nino and La Nina in a in a global climate model, say going out a hundred years, because there's just some fine scale stuff that's you know hard to represent in a model. Uh, it just isn't the money to have a, a model right. that detailed of uh, covering a hundred years. So that's one challenge. Um, another is just um, simply the science. You know, even though the best models have had differing opinions, you know on whether we'll have stronger El Nino or La Ninas, uh, will they last longer, will they, the tempo change? There hasn't been a real consistent signal. So uh, I think the key thing is El Nino and La Nina don't just depend on whether it's warm or cold globally, they depend on the contrast in the Pacific. And so you're always gonna have some contrast between different parts of the, of the, the ocean basin. So I wouldn't expect that El Nino and La Nina, the way it looks now are gonna change radically. I think we'll notice other things before we notice that. Right. How how well can we predict this stuff? You know, like um, I know that we've got the El Nino watch that's out right now. Um, you know, I when I hear the word watch, I just think immediately about severe weather and stuff like that. I'm I'm curious uh, what their processes are about, uh, you know, yeah. going out and verifying all this stuff. And, um, you know, like how, how accurate can we be with forecasting it? Well, obviously, you know, when you think about it, the numbers are much smaller you're working with. I mean, you know, right. you issue a tornado watch and you might get five tornadoes or 20 or 40 or 60. A little bit easier to uh, go out there and actually do the survey too, I would imagine. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and then you can go back and use statistics in a powerful way to say, well, you know, X number of tornadoes were in watches. Well, with El Nino and La Nina, you'll get one or none. You know, it's kind of binary. Right. You get it or you don't. So it'll take a long time to get enough statistics to show the quality of those particular forecasts. But in general, you know, we've done a pretty good job, of, especially by the time you get to fall, of saying, well, we see an El Nino or La Nina setting up. And you might think of that more as now casting. You know, you're really just saying, well, here it, here it is developing. Uh, what's much harder is, say, the previous spring. You know, to say, well, a year from now, we're going to have one or the other. And that's because in the spring, you know, the previous event is fading and the atmosphere hasn't quite gone back to normal and you don't see the seeds of the new one developing yet. And in the weather world, it's called the spring predictability barrier, which is a phrase I love. Uh, you really can't say a whole lot in the spring, but once you get to summer and fall, you have a better idea. There you go. Uh, what are some of the biggest events that we've had around the globe? You know, uh, not only El Nino, but maybe La Nina, um, you know, maybe the last few decades or something like that. What sticks out at, uh, to you as far as what was either really bad or, you know, just something that was noteworthy? Well, there's been a trio of really bad El Ninos that, that come to mind. The first one is 82-83, uh, 1982-83. That one affected California in a really big way. And it was the first time we had satellite data to show uh, this warming in the Pacific at the same time as the storms were hitting California. So it really hit headlines, this, this thing called El Nino. That was really the first big mass media awareness that there was such a thing. But it wasn't a prediction by any means. Uh, in fact, it wasn't even clear we had a, an El Nino going on until 
it was recognized we did. So then the next really big one of comparably strong was in 97, 98. And that prompted the, the immortal Chris Farley skit and the Nino. Yeah. Yeah. El Nino, Spanish for the Nino. <laughs> um, so of course, by the time you get to 97, 98, you've got the internet kicking in, um, you know, and news online. So uh, that put things in onto a new level and the weather channel was, was in its prime, you know, it had been on the air for 15 years. So, there are a lot of new venues for getting the word out. So that one really uh, caught fire among the public. That's when I think everybody just learned about it, honestly. That's the first time I'd ever heard of it. But you see these things all the time. There was even one recently. I can't remember what it was. But every couple of years, a new one comes out. I remember like 2010, it was Asperatus undulatus clouds, a new <laughs> type of cloud. Oh, my gosh. It's a new cloud that has never been there before. No, it's something that's been around forever. We just decided to you know, kind of spread around the word that it exists and it has a name. Same deal with the polar vortex. That became kind of a buzz thing, something that's been around forever. And there was one recently that I can't remember. But anyway, um, so you're saying 82 and 83, and then there was uh, 97, 98. And then uh, what else? And then most recently, uh, 2015, 16. Now, now this actually was a two-year one. It started in 2014, but it really didn't get sea legs, if you will, until... 2015. And then it, it was actually the strongest of those three, uh, the strongest one in, in modern records. So uh, that so that was just um, three years ago now. I um, remember I just started working at the Weather Channel. We were like nonstop covering it. And this is when I learned that people are so interested in it because, you know, working for the digital side of, of the Weather Channel, you know, we're always watching very closely how many people are watching which videos. We adjust headlines. We're trying to get people to click, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, with El Nino, every time those two words are on a headline, people just click it like crazy. Now, the funny thing is to me, and I'm a meteorologist, um, I don't know. For me, I'm not like into that kind of stuff as much. It's not as interesting to me. So I'm not superbly interested in El Nino and La Nina. I know a lot of them are, but I find that the public is always really interested in this. And I find that super interesting. Yeah, it's it's a thing. You know, it's easy to identify as a, a creature. Uh, and I think in large part it is because of the name. Uh, you know, the name itself is interesting because it literally in Spanish, when it's capitalized, as it usually is, it means the Christ child or the boy interesting. child. Interesting. Capitalized. And the reason I got that name is because fishers off, off on the coast of Peru and Ecuador, more than a hundred years ago, they noticed that in some years around Christmas time, the waters got much warmer than usual, and that killed off the anchovies that they depended on, and also. Um, affected the guano uh, harvesting <laughs> for fuel and such. I know um, what guano is. You know what guano is, yeah. So <laughs> yes. anyway, uh, there's a whole chain of things in that region affected. So they named it El Nino, and that was adopted when scientists began looking at it. And um, the funny thing is, I think if scientists had discovered this 10 years ago, it would have been named the warm phase of the Southern Oscillation. <laughs> we would have called it the WPSO. And, and it wouldn't have been in nearly as many headlines, don't you think? Yeah, people wouldn't have cared as much. Did you just say guano as fuel or food? No, no, fuel. I meant to say fertil- uh, fertilizer. Oh, yeah. fertilizer. Okay, yeah. great. I was Thank like, wow, that's interesting. We could save a lot of money because there's a yeah. lot of bats. Bat poop, by the way. That's what guano yeah. is, just in case people yeah. were wondering. But, but uh, also a bird, bird Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, is it bird poop too? I, I believe so. I, I'm, I'm getting out of my, my lane here. So that's I all right. We could do a whole podcast on it. You can go through our knowledge of it. Um, okay, so uh, let's also talk about some you know specific effects that these things have on the U.S. Right. So uh, I'm trying to think of just the biggest weather events that um, people care about the most that happen to the U.S. I'm thinking of things like winter storms, um, 
hurricanes, um, let's see, wildfire season, mm-hmm. uh, flooding, severe weather. Like what what are the things that stick out the most to you as, hey, this is an El Nino year. So that means, hey, for instance, yeah. we're going to have more winter storms or something like that. And that may not be technically correct, by the way, but go ahead, Bob. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot we can say about all that. So let's look at El Nino first since we have a, a potential El Nino this winter. Um, so the main things are wetness from California to Florida along the, the Gulf, you know, the southern tier of the country uh, tends to be wetter than average, um, tends to be drier toward the north, tends to be kind of mild in the south and cool in the north. So you don't tend to get massive Arctic outbreaks during El Nino. So that's one good thing. Um, and interestingly, in Colorado, we tend to get our biggest snowstorms during El Nino, but they're in the fall and in the spring, kind of on either end of winter. That's interesting. Um, in in Florida, um, tornado outbreaks are more likely during the uh, late winter and spring during El Nino because what happens is you got you tend to get a split in the jet stream across North America. So the polar jet lifts up into Canada and keeps it pretty mild up toward the north, but uh, you have the the subtropical jet intensifying that runs across the Sun Belt, and that can juice uh, thunderstorm development across Florida. So uh, one of the worst outbreaks uh, in, in tornado history in Florida was in uh, the El Nino of 1997-98, and I think it was February of 98. I'm I'm trying so, to think uh, like what about uh, what about winter storms in the Northeast? Is there any direct uh, close correlation with either? Um, in general, I think La Nina is what I associate more with winter storms. Um, because during La Nina, you've got uh, this much stronger temperature contrast. You, you tend to get more robust right. Arctic intrusions coming in, and you've you've got warm, moist flow from the Gulf of Mexico across the southeast. Uh, those tend to be pretty uh, mild winters, and warm winters even in the south and southeast. And so those contrasts are there in place uh, to to you know provide jet fuel for a winter storm that happens to develop. Now, on the east coast of of um, U.S., I think the ideal formula, if I remember correctly, is is uh, La Nina plus a uh, negative phase of the North Atlantic Oscillation. I know for radio we're getting kind of complex. That's okay. Here. We're going to get into it. Let's do it. Um, yeah. Why don't we go through a couple of those? Because uh, some of them I don't even know what the heck they stand for, to be completely honest. Um, and, you know, obviously since I've worked at the Weather Channel, and yes, I did go to school for meteorology, if you're questioning my, <laughs> me right now. How dare you? Of course you <laughs> I'm a severe weather specialist, all right? I don't, I don't do the climate stuff as much. But um, – so one that we've talked about a lot recently is the Madden-Julian oscillation, the MJO. And yeah, uh, yeah I, I kind of know what it is, but maybe you can do a better job explaining it. Well, and that plays into hurricanes. So I'm glad you brought it up. So first of all, the the effect of, on, of, of El Nino and La Nina on hurricanes, it tends to swing the, the poles of action, if you will, between the Atlantic and uh, the Pacific. So when you have a... El Nino going on, you, you've got rising motion over that warm air in the Pacific, Eastern Pacific. So you tend to get more hurricanes off the coast of Mexico, uh, the ones that sometimes strike there but tend to go out to sea. You get fewer hurricanes than usual in the Atlantic on average because what goes up must come down, right? So we have rising air over that El Nino region. You've got sinking air uh, over the Atlantic more often than not. And just so people know, rising air usually equals you know storms, clouds, bad weather, uh, yeah. Sinking air usually means good weather, sunshine, all that kind of stuff. You need rising air for all that kind of stuff to happen. So, yeah. okay, MJO. Let me let me ask you if this is a an accurate way to explain that one. Mm-hmm. I, I was kind of explaining it on air as like this big ball of enhanced activity that's kind of moving around the globe, right? Yeah. Does that make sense? 
Around the tropics, yeah. Around the tropics, yeah. Okay, so that makes a lot more sense. And that, it, it's recently been more over the Pacific, and that's why things have been so active out there, like you were saying. Um, but what is the time frame on like when that moves from the Pacific into the Atlantic? Well, it varies. You know, it's it's it tends to take about say forty five to sixty days to circle the globe, and sometimes it's stronger, sometimes it's weaker, and sometimes it slows a little, sometimes it speeds up. But you know, if you were going to draw an average, it would be about every month and a half to two months. It kind of comes around the mountain and uh, influences things. And in in particular, during hurricane season, when uh, the Madden Julian Oscillation or when the MJO is in a favorable phase, it creates a big zone of rising air. And when that rising air is over the Atlantic, obviously that makes it more hurricane prone. And that's exactly what we've got going on in September this year. So uh, that can kind of counteract. In other words, we've got all these different things like the MGO and El Nino, La Nina, that can affect hurricanes and you have to kind of overlay them to see what we end up getting. So right now we do, we're not really to El Nino yet. So I'd say the influence of ENSO on the Atlantic is kind of neutral, but we've got this MJO that's, that's um, hurricane favorable. So right now things have tipped over towards supporting uh, storms in the Atlantic and voila, we've got, you know, <laughs> uh, we just had Gordon, we've got uh, Florence, which we'll be dealing with for a few days. And it looks like we might have um, Helene and Isaac coming oh, down the boy. pretty soon. What so your... it's a pretty active <laughs> September already. What are your predictions on whether those goofy long-range Atlantic hurricane season forecasts are going to change as well? Because those are another one of those things where, you know, first, I don't really like that we do them. We could do a whole podcast on that. But I think it's so funny how we just keep going through the season and they just kind of observe what's happening. Like, oh, okay, well, I guess yeah. we need to change the forecast now. <laughs> Well, you know, you know it's, it's so true. And what, what I like about them is it gets people to think about, about seasonal climate. That's weather. true. And I, and I really do like that aspect. And if people realize that, uh, like any forecast, you know, it, it, on average, it does pretty well, especially the outlooks that are issued, say, in April, May, June. Uh, they give you a sense, will it be a busier or, or lighter season? But there's some subtleties in there. For example, this year, we're having a quite a number of named storms, but until Florence, they haven't really been that strong. It's true. So if you look at kind of the accumulated energy, it's been way below average, but the numbers have been close to average. So the seasonal outlooks that say it'll be a quiet season, well, they're not so far off the mark as of this point. Now, Florence may, in fact, uh, really rack up that accumulated energy because it's going to be probably a long-lived hurricane. And it became much stronger than expected. Just today, it became a major hurricane. So that's almost a theme that we've seen a little bit. It seems like some of some storms getting stronger than expected. Have you noticed that at all over the last um, uh, month or so? Uh, well, this year maybe in particular, but on the whole, you know, intensity forecasting has gradually gotten better. But it is still the most difficult part of hurricane prediction by yeah. far. A track model steadily better, better, better. Uh, intensity slow progress, and then some stalling out and it's just really tough. You know, we, as recently as say a day and a half ago, we thought Florence may not even be a hurricane right now. And here it is a cat three. So yeah, it's just tough, you know, and I think people need to keep that in mind and, and allow for the fact that a storm might be stronger, weaker than expected. You know, what we really should do, let's do a podcast on just the, um, just the acronyms one day. That's actually a good idea, isn't it? Like we should do a whole right. podcast on just acronyms. A-okay. <laughs> okay, let's do that because um, I think I think we should wrap this one up because this was a really good talk. I actually learned a pretty decent amount from talking with you about this, so I appreciate it. I will take this onward and 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 on forth. What the heck is that saying anyway? Onward. On, onward. The one I like is onward and upward. <laughs> onward and upward. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> yeah, 
we'll see if El Nino ends up going onward and upward. You know, the yes. temperature has to get to plus five degrees C over the El Nino 3.4 region. So there's just a few more morsels for those acronym happy folks. It's that it's that much, huh? Plus five C. That's a that's a big uh, temperature swing, isn't it? It's a high bar. Now here's what what gets funky. If you live in Australia, the Bureau of Meteorology in Australia, their threshold is 0.8 C. So it can literally be an El Nino as defined by NOAA and not an El Nino as defined in Australia. Wow. That's very interesting. All right, Bob, this has been fantastic. Hey, if you like the podcast, uh, you know, give it five stars. That'd be great. Can you do five stars or is it four stars? I've never rated a podcast before, but if you're the... As many stars as possible. As many, whatever the highest is. It would be just fantastic if you could do that. Um, And we'll be back soon with another episode about something weather-related, right? We've got a lot of ideas uh, coming down the pipe, and I think this is going to become more of a consistent thing. We're going to do it more often as we go into the fall. Um, We'll see how things go. But it's, it's been fun so far, and Bob, I enjoyed this. You have a fantastic rest of the day. All right, brother? You too, Ari. Always a pleasure.